Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Building the Machine, the new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. Over these 12 episodes, we're bringing you the story of the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati's baseball dynasty that changed the game forever. Day by day, year by year, you're going to see how the machine was constructed, experience all the highs and lows, and take a look at the legacy that remains. Each week, we'll be bringing you a new episode, focusing on a single year from 1969 to 1979. If you didn't get to experience the Big Red Machine as they were dominating baseball, you're going to enjoy the chance to experience the story as if you were there. And you'll learn more about the names and events that were so important in shaping the narrative around the Cincinnati Reds. We're also going to include some thoughts on what was different about baseball back then, from salary negotiations to the way the game was played to the things that happened that made this team become what it ultimately became. Now, if you were fortunate enough to watch the machine live, this should be a fun blast from the past. This is episode two, Sparky Arrives. I'm Chad Dotson, and joining me now to discuss 1970 and a pivotal turning point in the creation of the Big Red Machine is Bill Lack. How are you today, Bill? I'm wonderful. I'm really excited about talking about 1970. It's a great, what a great year in Reds baseball. It was a great year in Reds baseball, and if you listen to our first episode, uh, you'll uh, have the, the information as we lead into this about uh, what happened with the Reds in 1969. If you haven't listened to that yet, go back and listen to it. It's still there. The Reds finished 1969, 89-73 behind Dave Bristol, manager Dave Bristol. Reds finished third in the National League West, and this uh, we talked about in the first episode of this series was the turning point in some ways uh, in, in terms of when the machine actually started beca- being constructed, but things were about to change big time, weren't they, Bill? Yeah, it was. It, it's definitely one of the, the big pieces to the final puzzle that ultimately came together in the mid-70s, but, you know, this was one of the, the pieces of the foundation that happened before the 1970 season. 1970, it was a strange year in pop culture and in the world. The calendar turned from the uh, turbulent 60s over to the 70s, and the Beatles officially broke up, Bill. Their final album, Let It Be, was released. Their last official recording together with all of them was in August of 1969. That's the end of an era there, huh? Yeah. Other than Ringo, the other three re- released their first solo albums. All three of them released albums in 1970. 1970 was also the year of Apollo 13, the mission to the, the moon that went awry and was really a question about whether it was going to be able to make it back to Earth find uh, Tom Hanks film that you should watch about that, but Apollo 13. Now, Bill, do you remember uh, the Apollo 13 saga in real time? Yeah, I do. I, I was in elementary school, but yeah, I, I, I do remember, you know, I remember the, the NASA thing where they showed, you know, where the side of the, the module had blown off, you know, I think the guy's name was, I forget the guy's name, he was on ABC, their science editor, and he said, well, this panel is blown away, and we're not real sure of the damage that's all under here. And Scary. Yeah, it, it was it was a scary time. It, it, unless you lived through that time, you don't understand how exciting the, sp- the space program was. And, and, you know, and this was, sh- you know, not too many years before this, we'd lost three astronauts in the Apollo program on the pad. So this kind of brought back memories of losing those astronauts. And it was a scary time. 1970 was also the year that legislation was signed banning cigarette ads on television which uh, most of our listeners now can't even believe was actually a thing at one time, but 1970 was the genesis of that. 
Also, uh, the Vietnam War was proceeding apace. 1970, the United States invaded Cambodia, Bill. I wasn't there. You were not there. It's true. It's true, Bill. But it did happen, according to the history books. And in a uh, at a protest at Kent State University about the invasion of Cambodia, four were killed and nine wounded by the Ohio National Guardsmen that day, one of the uh, great tragedies of the 70s. Yeah, Kent State is, is in fact, this year they're honoring that uh, memorial to that uh, for the 50th year of the tragedy at Kent State. Also in the news that uh, year, the Chevy Vega and Ford Pinto were introduced. Now, uh, did elementary school Bill drive either a Chevy Vega or a Ford Pinto in 1970? Uh, no, I never drove either one of those, but my best friend, his sister had a Vega that she used to let him drive. Oh, nice. It, it, had, the, the, it had the required rusty front fender. I think they came from the factory like that. Pretty sure. I believe they did. Yeah. On the sports uh, scene, Monday Night Football debuted in 1970. And uh, that year, Tom Dempsey of the Saints kicked a 63-yard field goal. Bill, that's a long field goal. This is not baseball talk, but that's still, that's long. That's a long field goal with a half a foot. In the Super Bowl, the Chiefs beat the Vikings. And then the less than a month afterwards, the leagues officially merged to form the National Football League. Yeah, that had been in the works for, you know, a couple of years. But the, the upset, I mean, that was two years in a row where the AFL upset the NFL. And, and the, I looked it up. The point spread for this game was 12. The Vikings were favored by 12. The year before, the Colts had been favored by 18. So I, I'm guessing the bookmakers took another bath. In the National Basketball Association, Bill, the New York Knickerbockers defeated the <clears> Los Angeles Lakers in Game 7 to win the NBA championship. Now, that Lakers team was pretty good. Jerry West, Wilt Chamberlain, and, and Elgin Baylor. But, man, that Knicks team, that was one of the iconic moments in the history of basketball when injured Willis Reed comes out of the locker room prior to the uh, the game and the Knicks crowd goes nuts and the Knicks go on to win the series. Big, big fan of uh, Willis Reed, Bill? I was that I was in that series. It, 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 him in the seventh game. I mean, he basically limped on the court and drug himself up and down the court for every minute he played. It was a it was a pretty amazing feat to to beat that really good Lakers team in seven games. Bobby Orr and the Boston Bruins won the Stanley Cup that year. Brazil won the World Cup. Lee Trevino was the money winner, uh, the leading money winner on the PGA Tour. But uh, Jack Nicklaus won his second British Open in a playoff. How about movies, Bill? Let's talk about the movies that year. Patton was released and would go on to win Best Picture. Other movies released in 1970 that, to me, are iconic. You may have some others. Five Easy Pieces and the film version of MASH. The only other one I had to add was Little Big Man was released that year. An iconic Dustin Hoffman movie. And I'm a huge John Wayne fan, and he released two movies that year, but neither one were his best efforts. Uh, Chisholm and Rio Lobo. Little Big Man? Now, is that not a documentary about Joe Morgan? No, that's another Little Big Man. Oh, okay. All right. On the music scene, uh, Elvis Presley undertook his first concert tour since 1958. And uh, on the less uh, happy side of the the ledger, Jimi Hendrix died from an overdose of sleeping pills. And uh, later in the year, Janis Joplin also died of an overdose. Both were 27 years old. So, rough year in the world of music. And that 27, age of 27, is, is it something that rings for, it's still today. So many of these musicians and celebrities die at age 27. We'll see another one in 1971. 
The number one single was Bridge Over Troubled Water, Simon and Garfunkel. Number two was The Carpenters, Close to You. Number three was Grand Funk's American Woman. The Jackson Five had three songs in the top 20 that year. And the Beatles only had one song in the top 20 that year. Born in 1971, some of the names that were born, uh, Mariah Carey, Andre Agassi, Alonzo Mourning, a couple of my favorite directors, Paul Thomas Anderson and Christopher Nolan, um, the, one of the greatest rappers of all time, Fife Dog from A Tribe Called Quest. You're a big fan of Fife Dog, right, Bill? Sure. <laughs> Melissa McCarthy <laughs> was born that year. Debbie Gibson, Kelly Ripa, Queen Latifah, Uma Thurman, Tina Fey, Phil Mickelson, the immortal Tanya Harding, and Melania Trump, all born in 1971. Died that year. There weren't a lot of uh, significant deaths other than the ones we've already mentioned. Gypsy Rose Lee, Charles de Gaulle, Sonny Liston, that's, uh, that's about it. Um, and on the baseball side, some notable baseball players were born that year. Jim Tomey, Jim Edmonds, Javi Lopez, Eddie Gordado, former Red, Mark Wohlers, and Brewers manager Craig Council. Do you have any other final thoughts about the pop culture and kind of setting the stage of what the world was like as we moved into 1970, Bill? 1970 was also the first year that the Cincinnati Bengals made the playoffs. <laughs> you're, you're suggesting to me that the Bengals made the playoffs? Yep. Of course, it, it, as, as per usual for the Bengals, they didn't win a game, but they did get beat that by the team that won the Super Bowl. So, uh, By the transit of property, they were the second-best team in the league that year. Something like that. Something like that. Okay, let's turn to uh, to baseball. And we actually, before we can get into 1970, we kind of have to turn the page back in the calendar one year to 1969 because late in the year that's when some really significant things happen and I'll let you talk about the most significant thing October 8th when the Reds fired Dave Bristol as their manager. Just to clarify something one of the things that Chad and I decided when we were doing this was that we were going to start the new season the day after the end of the previous season so anything that happened after the conclusion of one season rolls into the next year so so on October the 8th Dave Bristol was fired. I can't believe it didn't come as a shock to Bristol. I've never read anything one way or the other that, that he expected to be fired or anything like that, but he'd had a wonderful career as manager of the Reds. They'd been in the playoff hunt all the way down to the middle of September in 1969. I would think that this would be a very shocking day for, for Dave Bristol, that the Reds must have moved pretty quickly because Sparky Anderson was hired the next day. That Sparky was only given a one-year contract his first year. So, you know, he felt like he had to perform, and I think he ended up doing pretty well. No question. If you listen to our first episode of this series, we did discuss Dave Bristol at length and how he contributed to the building of the Big Red Machine. But, yeah, Bristol was, I think, let's see, 36 years old when he was fired. He was a young guy himself coming off a, a really, really nice season. The Reds won 89 games and were competitive in the National League West uh, in the first year of the National League West. So, uh, it had to be a surprise to him, but now he landed on his feet. He did uh, manage with the uh, Brewers, the Braves, and the Giants later. But as you noted in uh, episode one of this series, uh, he never had another winning season after being fired from the Reds job. I also think he came back and coached on one of the Reds staffs later, but I don't remember exactly when that was. I do remember, 1989, 20 years later, he came back to coach under... Uh, Pete Rose was the, the manager at the beginning of the year, and then Tommy Helms was the interim manager later, so he coached with him. Okay. And, then, and then in 1993, he came back, and he was on uh, Tony Perez's staff. So poor Dave Bristol gets fired for after a really good season uh, in favor of uh, Sparky Anderson. Rehired by the Reds, by Pete Rose, manager Pete Rose, who is then banned from baseball. 
and then later comes and <laughs> agrees to coach with the Reds again under Tony Perez, who was summarily dismissed after 44 games. I'm really starting to feel bad for old, uh, old Dave Bristol. Yeah, he must have uh, decided that staying as far away from Cincinnati as he could would probably be the best idea, even though he was inducted into the Reds Hall of Fame last year. Yeah, and if you see, saw any of the uh, interviews with him around that time, he was really fired up about uh, being remembered in Cincinnati. He really, he really enjoyed it. So you're right. One day later, the Reds hire George Sparky Anderson, and and it really was a complete surprise to, to everyone at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the headlines in the paper were Sparky who? Nobody knew who this guy was. He wasn't well-known to the general public. Apparently, he had a pretty good you know reputation in, in inside baseball, Housem had hired him before in, in the Cardinals system in 65 and again in 68 with the Reds. He managed the Reds team in Asheville. But in 69, he was with the Padres and had taken a job with the Angels for 1970 when he was hired by the Reds. Interesting because he's a, a young guy who kind of flamed out in the minor leagues as a player and had only spent one year on a big league staff at that time. His first move as a manager was one that kind of set the stage for some of the reputation he got later. Uh, and that was naming Pete Rose team captain. I think he was immediately, that kind of made a splash as well, didn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, Pete was the Cincinnati kid. Probably, at the time, probably the most p- popular player on the team. I, mean, I think he'd be eclipsed in the next few years, or at least have to share that mantle with a number of other players. But I don't think there's any doubt when, when they went to spring training in 1970 that Pete Rose was probably the most popular player and probably the most respected player on the team. You know, he'd won two batting titles. It won gold gloves in the outfield, and and nobody played harder. So it, to me, this was a pretty you know no no brainer to decision by Anderson, but it, it did set the tone. I agree with you there. Well, and, and and Sparky got a lot of praise later in his Reds career for basically having the big four: Rose, Bench, Morgan, and Perez, and kind of letting them run the clubhouse in a way. You know, giving them uh, not really carte blanche, but giving them a, a the ability to go and, and kind of manage things in that clubhouse uh, as kind of a second level of management. And it really empowered the team a little bit, and, and no one wanted to let those guys down as well. And, and that's been – we'll talk about that probably more as this series goes on. That's been a big uh, one of the big keys to the success of the Big Red Machine. Now, we'll be talking plenty about Sparky throughout uh, this uh, episode and later episodes, but – uh, not too many other roster moves, but a couple of key roster moves, right, Bill? Yeah. The Reds sent Alex Johnson, who had a really good season for him in 69. They sent him to California to the Angels, along with Chico Ruiz for, for Jim McLaughlin and Vern Geishart and Pedro Bourbon. Um, Johnson would go on and win the, the batting title in 1970 for the Angels. And Chico Ruiz will always be famous for his bench me or trade me statement that he made at some point, I don't know what year it was, like 68 or 69, when he was he was always a bench player. And for because of injuries, he had to play a number of days in a row. And he told they told Bristol that they needed to either bench him or trade him. <laughs> uh, That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And the three guys that they got for them, uh, Jim McLaughlin would have a couple of really good years. He's a tragic story. Died very early. Vern Geishart would be part of a, a big deal later on. And Pedro Bourbon, of course, would be a a reliever, a solid reliever for the Reds for many years through the, this dynasty. Yeah, so that became a uh, uh, kind of a key move, not really one that moved the needle too much, except, you know, Bourbon certainly did certainly did uh, help the Reds as, uh, throughout the, the 70s, and and uh, McLaughlin was, was pretty good for a couple of years. 
But uh, we can turn the page now and move into 1970s. And now Sparky Anderson is in, and he has his first spring training. And uh, and Johnny Bench memorably called it Stalag 17. You know, Stalag's a, a German prison camp, essentially. And there was a movie by that title, and that was what the Bench called it. it was it was it was evidently the hardest spring training any of them had been through in, in Sparky's first year managing this club. So uh, the spring training, uh, the brutal spring training, intense conditioning, and uh, the Reds coming off that 89 win season. A lot of the preseason predictions had them all over the map, but some had them picked to go first. Uh, some of them had them picked as low as as fifth. Um, Bill, what are some of the other headlines around spring training? Because this was kind of a memorable year for baseball in a couple of significant ways away from the Reds, right? American League back-to-back side young winner Denny McLean was suspended for hanging out with gamblers. And this was the year that Kurt Flood refused his trade to the Phillies, which brought about the challenge of the reserve clause and bringing about the 10-5 rule and ultimately bringing about free agency to Major League Baseball. Yeah, huge, huge significant moment in the history of baseball. Now, the Reds, essentially coming into the spring, had six of their positions pretty much set, didn't they? Yeah. The only open spots were really kind of left field and shortstop. They ended up settling on a, on a platoon in left field of McCray and Carbo. Hal McCray and Bernie Carbo. Yeah, Hal McCray, who ends up, you know, has a long career with the Royals later uh, and manages the Royals. And Bernie Carbo, who we'll talk a lot more about in a few years. And then at shortstop, they, they at least early on, were it was mostly Woody Woodward and, and Davey Concepcion and Daryl Chaney was involved, too. It was kind of a three-headed monster at times at shortstop. Yeah, those were the, really the only positions that were not quite settled, although shortstop would become settled very soon. Concepcion, of course, was only 22 years old that season. Uh, and Woody Woodward just uh, 27, but... He was a short-timer replacing Leo Cardenas in that trade before 1969. Uh, he did uh, play in 100 games, but uh, shared time with Concepcion. You mentioned Carbo and Hal McRae. Both uh, performed uh, fairly effectively that season. Carbo, uh, of course, was, was uh, 22 years old that year and was was more than effective. I mean, he was, he was outstanding that season. The other six regular positions pretty much locked up. Let's run through those so that everyone knows who the starting nine is, essentially. Starting eight. Uh, catcher, Johnny Bench, obviously. He was okay. Yeah, he, he did. A, he had a pretty good year that year. He did have a pretty good year that year. And I guess let's, uh, you know, spoiler alert, but Johnny Bench, also 22. Do you sense a, a theme here? These young stars, uh, 22 years old, won the uh, most valuable player that season. Hit 293, 345 on base, 45 homers, 148 RBIs. As they say, that ain't bad for a catcher. Uh, they were numbers that had never been reached by a catcher before, which kind of ultimately led to the, the MVP that Bench takes home when he takes home that hardware after the season. Lee May was the first baseman. Lee May was 27 that year. He did have 34 homers and, and 94 ribeye stakes, but uh, not his uh, not his best season, but still a relatively productive year for Lee May in uh, one of his final seasons in Cincinnati. Yeah, we didn't know that at the time, but yeah. yeah. Second baseman, Tommy Helms. He was 29. The second time we mentioned Tommy Helms here, who became an interim manager. And, and Helms had a pretty good season uh, the, the year before. This year, not so much. He was, But he did play 150 games at second base. And most people don't remember that Tommy Helms was a rookie of the year. Yeah. Uh, another Reds Hall of Famer. Third baseman, 
Tony Perez. So uh, most people will remember Tony Perez as a first baseman, obviously. But Perez, perhaps the best season ever for a third baseman in Reds history in 1970. It was a real good one. It, you, you could argue that Suarez maybe last year had one that was almost as good, but this was probably Perez's best year. Yeah, and and for the fir- and for the first half of the year, he outperformed Bench offensively. Yeah, Bench ends up with the, the most valuable player award, and we'll talk some more about that at the end of the podcast. But uh, you could make an argument that Perez had an even better season than Johnny Bench. Um, I'm not going to do that. Uh, with the bat, I should say. Bench, of course, was yeah. a legendarily great defensive catcher. Carbo and, and McCray and left. Centerfield was Bobby Tolan, 24 years old, had a good season. Uh, we are definitely going to be talking more about Bobby Tolan as this uh, series goes on. And then Pete Rose was in right field. You remember Pete Rose started in centerfield on opening day the year before, 1969. He started primarily in right field, played 159 games, and 730 played appearances that year. Now, on the pitching side of the ledger, Reds had five pitchers get more than 25 starts this season. Gary Nolan, again, 22 years old, was 18-7. and seven, And this was kind of the, the height of uh, Gary Nolan mania. I mean, he, he had a very short, he flamed out because of injury early. But, man, at this time, was there anyone like Gary Nolan uh, in, in Cincinnati? There hadn't been anybody like Gary Nolan in Cincinnati, that young, that effective, for a long, long time, had there? People were saying he was kind of the heir apparent to Jim Maloney. This was the fireball in Gary Nolan. This is before the, all the arm problems that we'll talk about in the next couple of years. And Nolan was incredible at this time. I mean, he just threw it by you. He had a heck of a year that year. Yeah. Uh, other starters, uh, we mentioned Leo Cardenas a moment ago. He was traded to the Twins for Jim Merritt. And, of course, Jim Merritt, uh, who had won uh, – 17 games in 1969, Jim Merritt went 20 and 12 for the Reds. Uh, and, and again, that's a little misleading. His ERA was the worst of any of the five primary starters for the for the Reds. But still, 20 wins, that sounds pretty good, right? And it was the last 20-game winner for the Reds for quite a while. Yep. Uh, Jim McLaughlin, who we talked about, he was 14 and 10 uh, that year. Got 35 or 34 starts. Wayne Simpson, 21-year-old Wayne Simpson. Wayne Simpson's a guy that uh, that you always like talking about, right? I think Wayne Simpson is is probably the second biggest what if story in the history of Cincinnati sports. The first half of the season in in 1970, Simpson looked like who uh, whatever name Hall of Fame name you want to pull out of the air, he looked like he could compare to anybody. Yeah, at age again at age 21, mm-hmm. the other starting pitcher who got. Uh, he only started 18 games, actually. I said more than 25. He had 30, 30 total games, but only started 18 of those. But it was Tony Cloninger, who was a 9-7 and seven with a 3.83 ERA. Out of the bullpen, some familiar names, if you have been following, uh, the, if you have known anything about the Big Red Machine. Clay Carroll, Pedro Bourbon, Wayne Granger, and then this some 19-year-old kid, kid named Don Gullett. The last teenager to pitch for the Reds. There's a story about Gullet where he asked for a day, Sparky for a day off because he had to go home to take his girlfriend to homecoming in high school. Five rookies in key positions for the Reds, tw- age 23 or younger, as far as I can uh, can tell. After a Gullet and Simpson both made the team uh, out of spring training, and so uh, this is going to be a fun year to talk about. Uh, the result of it, but you know, at the beginning of the Reds were coming off an 89-win season, but still a lot of young, untested players, that, and, and some of them would turn out to be 
uh, bona fide stars, but coming into the season, you had to be a little bit uh, skeptical is not the right word, but you know, uh, unsure of what this team was actually going to be able to deliver, I guess. Yeah, and I think that goes is, is exactly shown by where they say the experts were picking them anywhere from first to fifth. You know, the division had been tightly packed the year before. There was no reason to think that, you know, anybody was really going to separate themselves. But they did. They did. March 31st, near the end of spring training, was uh, there was an event that kind of foreshadowed something that was going to happen later in the summer. Uh, and I think you know what I'm talking about, Bill. Yeah, Mr. Rose, uh, he, he kind of plays every game like it's his last game. And they were playing an exhibition game against their AAA team. There was a play at the plate. Pete ran the catcher over in, a, in an exhibition game. And, and, and you'll see him probably do that again at another point in this season. Yeah, yeah, but we'll get there in a moment. Yeah, in Indianapolis catcher Jim Hibbs, poor Jim Hibbs, play at the plate and gets uh, gets demolished. So now we're here to the regular season, and um, it's the final opening day at Crosley Field, uh, so which was also Sparky's managerial debut on April 6th. And what happened in that game, Bill? Well, one of the interesting things is that Pete Rose was not the leadoff hitter. He was hitting third that day, and Bobby Tolan was the leadoff hitter. Which made some sense, especially at the time when uh, you know speed and athleticism at the top of the order is what you were after often, although Rose had plenty of at-bats in the leadoff spot throughout his career. Uh, but you're right, Rose was hitting third that day, which is uh, kind of odd from the uh, the new manager. <laughs> People are probably wondering, what is this guy doing hitting Pete Rose third? But uh, one of many out-of-the-box things that Sparky Anderson liked to do. The Reds uh, ultimately got a 5-1 to victory over the Montreal Expos that day. And uh, big game by Jim Merritt. Uh, the first of uh, many big games by Jim Merritt, wasn't it? Yeah, he, he threw a complete game, three-hitter, uh, gave up one run, and he really got off to a hot start. By the beginning of June, he was like, he was 11-3 and three and had a 2.92 ERA. Now, he had arm problems in the second half, and we'll be talking a lot about arm problems in the second half of the season. But he finished the year 20-11 with a 4.08 ERA, which tells you the kind of second half he had. Yeah. We talked about the rookies earlier as well, and it was a big day. Opening day was for the rookies. Uh, Bernie Carbo got his first big league hit, and uh, and Dave Concepcion made his debut and uh, <laughs> took the, uh, the 0 for 4 day. Now, what happened after that? The Reds go on to uh, beat the Dodgers. Now, April 6th, the final homeward, they, they defeated the Expos on April 6th at home, and then on April 7th, they're playing at Dodger Stadium. Does that seem as bizarre to you as it did to me when I saw that? I don't think that would happen today. I don't think so, no. No. <laughs> but it was a good, we talked about Merritt's start, it was a good start by Gary Nolan to beat the Dodgers 4 to nothing, wasn't it? Yeah, he went out there and threw a two, well, they went out and beat the Dodgers three games in a row, and and Nolan beat them, and then McLaughlin beat them, and then Wayne Simpson threw a two-hit shutout in his Major League debut, and on the, and on and then they went down to San Francisco, and Donnie Gullett made his major league debut. Right, with one and a half, third innings of scoreless relief in a four to three loss to the Giants uh, in San Francisco. Now, Don Gullett, we all know Don Gullett. He's just one of the legends um, in Cincinnati history for because he was part of these uh, big red machine. But 19 years old, big time star in high school football, basketball, and baseball uh, out of Kentucky, continues the trend that we've 
discussed already in this uh, in this episode of these young players getting a real opportunity on a good team early on and continuing to, although the Reds lost that game, continue to perform well. One day after that, the Reds were out of first place on April 11th, and that was the only day they were out of first place all season, if that tells you how this team started out the season and continued throughout the year. Yeah, yeah they lost to the Giants that day 2-1. to one. Gaylord Perry beat them. I bet he was throwing a spitter. Probably. So really the Reds should have been in first on technicality. That's, That's right. Cheaters never prosper. Cheaters never prosper unless they play for the Houston Astros. Let's move along in, in April on the 16th. Really a, a disastrous day for one of I know you're one of your favorite Reds that you've ever watched, Jim Maloney. Yeah, he he was trying to leg out a base hit in the third inning against the Dodgers and, and blew out his Achilles. And I remember listening to this game on, on, on the radio. And, and I remember, if I remember right, they just said, well, you know, he pulled up lame and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you, you really didn't think much of it at the time, but essentially this ended Maloney's career. He had been, I would say he's probably the Reds pitcher of the 60s, no doubt. He threw three no-hitters. One of them was an extra inning game. He struck out over 200 hitters four consecutive seasons and won over 20 games twice. And he's still today, I think he's still the Reds' all-time leader in strikeouts. Three days later, Wayne Simpson pitches a one-hitter. Gave up a double in the first inning. Uh, again, now seems like a good time to really talk about that start that Wayne Simpson had that season. Uh, as good as you, you can ask any kid to have, right? In his in his first three major league starts, he threw 25 innings. He allowed one run and seven hits. I mean, <laughs> think about that. It's 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 almost unfathomable for a kid his age, uh, 21 years old. How do you do that? I don't know. Uh, we haven't seen anybody do it for the Reds since then at that age. That's a fact. So we move uh, through uh, April and into May. And, uh, Bill, you, you noted here that something that was kind of a, a hallmark of Sparky Anderson's tenure, a little bit of unorthodox strategy on May 1st in that game against Pittsburgh. Yeah, and, and it's not as well, you know, he didn't have Michael Lorenzen pitching for him. So, But with two outs <laughs> in the ninth inning with, with Rain Ranger on the mound, he brings in Gullet. To, pay, to pitch against Willie Stargell for the Pirates. And he moves Granger to left field. You assume he was going to switch him back, you know, if they, they assume the next hitter up was probably a right-hander. But Gullet struck out Stargell to end the game. But Granger ended the, ended the game playing left field. Yeah, a lot of our uh, listeners will have uh, watched Michael Lorenzen do his thing for the, the current Reds and, uh, and may not think that's as odd. But in 1970, that was – you just didn't see things like that. Everyone tried to manage by the book until Sparky came around. But, of course, Don Gullett did strike out Stargell when the game was over. May 17th, that's a, a big day for Hank Aaron, who got his 3,000th hit off uh, Wayne Granger. But uh, something else, that was a doubleheader that day. Something else happened that, again, I can't believe this actually happened in a, in a game uh, in the major leagues in the second game of that doubleheader, Bill, on May 17th. Yeah, and this will be mind-blowing to, to, to people that weren't watching baseball back then. But in the second game of the doubleheader, the Reds had kind of a, a burly guy starting center field. His name was Bench. <laughs> All he of them catchers. He actually started the game, second game of the doubleheader playing center field. Most people don't know this unless they look it up, but in his career, Bench played six different positions with the Reds, and the only ones he didn't play were second base, shortstop, and pitcher. <laughs> and I'm a little bit surprised he didn't play those, but that's crazy. All three outfield positions he played. Um, he played a little bit of catcher as well. 
And uh, we don't want to talk about him at third base because that was a bad memory for young, young Chad. Maybe. But he played, he played third base in 1970. He played some games at third base, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, that's something you would not see today. Can you imagine the Reds putting uh, Tucker Barnhart in center field? And maybe that's not a fair comparison because Bench was a pretty good athlete, even though he didn't necessarily look like an elite athlete. He was a, a pretty good athlete. Um, but you, just can't, you can't imagine a catcher these days just getting a you know, one-off start in center field. I and mean, we have guys like Dale Murphy later and Craig Biggio who were catchers and moved to center field and second base respectively. But just you know, a, a full-time catcher, and not only that, the best catcher in baseball, just getting a, just a random start in center field because Sparky's trying to do something strange with his lineup and, and mix it up. It's just how did a, how did a manager at Sparky's of, of his little experience and at his tender age, how did he have the, the the guts to do some of those things during a time when everyone managed by the book? It's really startling and it gives you some idea of why Sparky ended up being a Hall of Fame manager, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, but it also tells you how much they wanted to keep Bench's bat in the lineup, even when they were giving him a day off from behind the plate. Yeah, they had to find a place for him, and, and it's worth uh, whatever you would take defensively, whatever hit you would take. Where do you want to go next? You want to move on to June? Yep. I don't see anything before June that's necessarily notable. June the 4th was the draft, and the Reds had a actually a pretty effective draft. Some of their drafts were not great during the uh, the Big Red Machine era, but that was a pretty good one, wasn't it? Yeah, they got three guys that would end up being pretty impactful for them in the in the next few years. They got Will McEnany, Ray Knight, and Pat Zachary in the in the draft in June. If they had never drafted Ray Knight that day, we may never have had to endure Ray Knight as manager for the Reds. So that that's the genesis of it right there. June twenty fourth was the final game at historic Crosley Field, and it was a pretty good one, wasn't it, Bill? Yeah, and this is another game that I actually remember listening to on the radio that night. Marishaw was pitching for the for the Giants, and the Giants slid four to three in the bottom of the eighth. But uh, Johnny Bench and Lee May hit back to back homers, and the Reds won. And, and after the game, home plate was actually dug up, and uh, there there's some good pictures of this. And they uh, took the took home plate by helicopter to the site of Riverfront Stadium, which would open uh, the following. Um, the following week, I guess, basically. So, now you you made a note here when we were uh, discussing what to talk about uh, on this podcast of a pretty interesting promotion by Super M uh, Marathon Gasoline. Tell me about yeah, it was it, it was a, it was a local gas company at the time, and they had a promotion that year. And I don't remember whether it was just that year or whether it had been the previous year also. But after this year, I'm sure they didn't ever do it again. But for every home run that a red player hit, they got 55 gallons of Super M Marathon gasoline. <laughs> Which and and why wouldn't they have wanted to do that after this year, Bill? Well, the Reds hit 191 home runs that year. That equals 10,505 gallons of gas they gave away. <laughs> Bench himself hit 45, which would have been 2,475 gallons. I've often wondered, and I would love somebody to ask Bench how many years it was before he paid for gas again. <laughs> he had a big, a lot of a ton. He had like six or seven of these big hoopty Cadillacs that he uh, filled up with <laughs> gas for years and years and years. I'm sure, uh, tooling around Cincinnati or the back roads of Binger, Oklahoma. June 30th, Riverfront Stadium opens. Now it's been a little startling recently to have uh, a certain number of listeners to the regular Red Leg Nation Radio podcast who don't have a lot of familiarity with Riverfront Stadium. 
some of them only remember it as Synergy Field, but even if they remember that, at least they got to experience uh, what was Riverfront Stadium. It's really uh, the si site of many, many great moments in the history of this franchise. And uh, it was officially opened to the public on June 30th. And at the time, you know, we look back on it as being a, kind of a monstrosity a little bit, this you know, uh, multi-purpose stadium. But at the time, it was pretty impressive, wasn't it? It was a state-of-the-art facility at the time. I mean, it, it was it was the first stadium that had sliding pits for bases. The the artificial turf, housing, believe, would keep the number of rainouts down and, and reward teams with speed. There were escalators and elevators, and and now they weren't working when the stadium opened. Uh, they were sharing sharing this. You know, the, the the attendance for the Reds doubled when they moved from Crossley to to Riverfront. It went from almost thirty to almost sixty. They were sharing. It was good for the city because they were sharing the stadium with the Bengals, which ended up causing a lot of problems. And it was one of the reasons, actually, that the stadium was never completed. Uh, disagreements between the Bengals and the Reds over what to do with this, with this, what was supposed to be the stadium club in center field, which was never finished. Uh, but it was, it was, and and it's my, you know, I remember going to Crosley Field when I was very young, but I grew up in Riverfront Stadium. You know, we used to go down in, in the mid seventies. And just get in the car at, at, at the afternoon at five o'clock or six o'clock and decide we were going to go to the ball game and drive down and be sitting in the ball, in the stadium in forty five minutes. It was great to get. It was easy to get in and out of. Plenty of parking. You know, it was it was a great facility. It was as much as I like Great American Ballpark. There's always going to be a special place in my heart for Riverfront Stadium, the first place that I had a chance to watch Major League Baseball. And uh, now you said that uh, <laughs> that uh, a lot showed up. 51,000 showed up for that first game at Riverfront, but the Reds did not really show up as they lost 8-2. to um, Pete Rose got the first hit for the Reds, but uh, Hank Aaron hit the first home run ever hit at Riverfront, and he would hit another iconic home run at Riverfront a couple years later. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fitting, I think, that, that a player of the statue of Hank Aaron hits the first home run in your stadium. There you go, exactly. That's that's how you know that uh, this stadium set for, for great things. One of the inner circle baseball legends hits uh, the first homer there, uh, the baseball's home run king for many, many years. Now, uh, the next day, here's I, I want to mention this specifically because this is always one of my favorite things about Riverfront and one of the things that, uh, I can't say that it upset me, but that I was not pleased about with Great American Ballpark when it first opened. Tommy Helms hit the first Reds home run at Riverfront, and it hit the foul pole. And you know that that spot was marked for, for many years with a yellow square. But I'm just picturing out there, and when I picture it in my mind's eye, I can see those blue seats and the green seats and the yellow seats and the red seats. And that was kind of uh, the way, hey, where are you sitting? Oh, we're going we're gonna to be in the uh, we're gonna be in the green seats, you know, out in right field. You know, it's just that's something that uh, you always talked about and uh, now they're just all red seats yeah that was how you that's how you, how you told somebody where you were sitting you're absolutely right you know we're, we're in uh, the blue seats behind first base or we're in the green seats in the in right center field uh, when Pete Rose came back to manage the Reds I was in the green seats in center field when I saw the uh, the playoff game again the first playoff game in 73 I was in the yellow seats in left field and that's just how you explained where you were sitting and, uh, you know, they're all red seats now. So if somebody asks me, hey, where are you sitting? I'm going to say, oh, I'm in the red seats. But I remember the red seats, you know, growing up, going to the stadium. There was the same, of course, went really high. You said it held uh, 60,000. There was always 
some Yahoo sitting in the very top row. No matter how few people were in the stands, there was always somebody, usually more than one, that wanted to sit in that top row. So, ah, uh, oh, man, what a great stadium. Well, if it was a full house, the top row was good because you could set your beer on the stand on the concrete behind you because you didn't have cup holders back then. So you could just set your beer on that ledge. <laughs> and as with everything for Bill, it comes back to where can he put his beer? Now, the All-Star game... Not, not, at, this, not at this time, but yeah, later on, that is true. <laughs> I, hope, I hope not at this time, that's true. The Reds in Riverfront Stadium actually hosted the All-Star game that year. They would not host it again until 1988, and then after that, 2015. Uh, but uh, the Reds had five representatives on the National League All-Star team. Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Tony Perez, Jim Merritt, and uh, your boy Simpson. Let's just go ahead. There are two things I want to talk about. First of all, let's talk about the infamous play. Let's set it up a little bit. Uh, for one thing, it, it, at that point, the National League had dominated the All-Star game. From 60 to 87, the National League went 26-4-1 and in the All-Star game. That's pretty strong. The National League didn't want to lose this game. So they're down 4-1 to in the ninth, and they scored three runs to tie it. And Pete Rose struck out in the ninth with the winning run on first base. So, and a lot of people don't don't realize that the, the Rose play in the All-Star game was in the 12th inning. This game went 12 innings. So he got a got a hit off of an angel pitcher named Clyde Wright, and Billy Grabarkowitz, who played for the Dodgers, got a hit, which sent Rose to second base. Then Jim Hickman, who was a Cub, got a hit, got the hit. And Amos Otis from the Royals picked it up, threw to the plate, and the infamous play of, with Rose and Fossey ensued there. Uh but well, let's just let's just say for those of you that uh, you know may not uh, know about this because we got to understand there are people that may not know Pete Rose just barreled over Ray Fossey the catcher in an All Star game and and it was used as an example of Pete Rose's hard hard nosed nature that even in an exhibition game he's going to go as hard as he can and the play was in front of him and he had to score to win the game and so he barreled over Fossey so anyway that's the, that, the that's the stage you were saying if, if if you've never seen the play YouTube it it's just that's the way Pete Rose played baseball. It is. Now, you made a note here. You did some research at all the – this is the other thing I want to talk about, all the future Hall of Famers in that game. And it's kind of crazy to think about all those guys in the same stadium at the same time. Who are some of the, the future Hall of Famers there? It, it, you're right. It's an incredible list. There's Hank Aaron, Louis Aparicio, Johnny Bench, Rod Carew, Roberto Clemente. Bobby, Bob Gibson, uh, Catfish Hunter, Harmon Killebrew, Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Joe Morgan, Jim Palmer, Tony Perez, Gaylord Perry, Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson, Tom Seaver, Hoyt Wilhelm, and Carl Yaskramski, all future Hall of Famers that were at that All-Star game, that were on the rosters for that All-Star game. Amazing. Amazing. Now, the Reds begin the second half, and they are, at this time, at uh, the halfway point of the season, or the All-Star break at least, they are 10 games up in the National League West. First place uh, at 63-26. and 26. So you can't ask for a much better start from Sparky's first team. They would actually, uh, a couple of days later, the lead would drop down to nine games over second place. And then the day, following day, by July 18th, it was uh, at 10. The Reds, it was never closer than 10 games the rest of the way. So uh, the Reds actually opened a new stadium to begin the second half, and that was Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh. A similar multi-use stadium. Now, as we move on to July 23rd, the Reds were shut out for the only time by, oh man, 
Milt Pappas. Mr. Milt, Mr. Milt Pappas, oh. who for who for the uninitiated was the centerpiece that the Reds got when they traded Frank Robinson to the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah. So, uh, and Robinson was an old thirty years thirty years old. Uh, Jim McLaughlin uh, started gave, pitched seven shutout innings, winning run scored on an error by Woody Woodward. Now, July twenty sixth, the Cincinnati Reds at that time. Uh, 12 and a half games up in the National League West. On July 26th, the Reds' left fielder had a huge day off of future Hall of Famer Steve Carlton, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, once again, Sparky wanted to keep that bat in the, in the lineup, and he had bench in left field that day. <laughs> and he hit three and he had throw, three homers and drove in seven runs off of Steve Carlton. And I remember looking this up. I didn't look it up for this, but Bench used to hit Carlton like a batting practice pitcher. I mean, he always hit left-hander as well, but he saw Carlton really well, and he used to knock him around like nobody's business. This was a big day for the Reds. It was their 100th game of the year, and at this point, they were 70-30 and 30 and had built a 12-and-a-half game lead in the National League. And the lead, the lead really never got much closer than, than that, but that was pretty much the high watermark for the Reds that season because they kind of, and, and we talk about the 1990 team all the time, because that's the last championship the Reds won, who kind of scuffled a little bit over this end of the season. And the Reds were just 32 and 30 the rest of the way, so barely over 500. And you, you kind of had to wonder, who, which team is this? But at, at that time, seven of your first 100 games, Sparky Anderson, how do you, how'd you like to be Sparky Anderson at that moment in time? I mean, he's got to be on top of the world. Well, you, you, ha- you have to wonder. If one, I would think you'd think two things. One, how do I not screw this up? And what did I do that was so right? You know, and how do I repeat it? Well, he figured out how to repeat it a little bit, although maybe not the rest of that year. And the reason that uh, some of it came crashing down a little bit, obviously injuries. And now's where we got to talk about Wayne Simpson, right? July 31st, he tore his rotator cuff. Yeah. Doing some research, we found that, that over like last 18 months before that, approximately, he'd thrown like 500 plus innings. And after being the Reds' number one draft pick in 67, and, and starting with the team in 1970, he was 13 and one with a 2.69 ERA, and effectively at this point his career is over, because the, the medical technology or, or capabilities at the time, they just couldn't fix a rotator like they can today. And you have to wonder. I mean, Simpson would have been coming into his prime in like 75 and 76. I can't even, I mean, if he'd have been stayed the same pitcher or improved or who knows what, I mean, you can always what if, but who knows how many games he could have won on those teams. Oh my goodness. And it's, it's really a sad story. And there's so many of these over the course of baseball history that uh, are known and even unknown because of, uh, you know, just medicine isn't, uh, wasn't what it is now, but 21 years old had been a number one draft pick and just kind of, you know, of course he's going to be an all-star as he was in 1970. That was, he was on a trajectory to superstardom and lots and lots of dollars. And you're right. uh, After the injury, after 1970, he had a uh, 22 and 28 record with a 4.89 ERA before finally retiring in 77. It's it's really, really just, it's a sad story for, for certainly for Wayne Simpson individually, but man, can you imagine him with Nolan and Gullett as kind of the big three in the Reds rotation in the mid-70s, uh, as the Big Red Machine continued to progress. Goodness, it, it kind of changes the narrative of the Reds a little bit as being a, uh, a pitching light team, although we're going to talk a lot more about whether that's true and whether it's not true. But 
having a big three like that with probably the best big three in, in Reds history, other than maybe, you know, like Elmer Descends and Steve Paris and somebody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if they could have kept Nolan and Simpson healthy and then combined them with Gullet, it would have been amazing. And it, it, it might have changed the narrative of what ends up happening in 73 and 74. Much less, you know, what they could have accomplished in 75 and 76. I mean, Nolan was back in 75 and 76, but he was a different pitcher. Uh, and they had Gullet. But if they would have had a healthy and, and, and amazing Wayne Simpson like he was in this in 1970, but who knows how many games they could have won. Yeah, I mean, I doubt the Reds have ever, in the history of the franchise, had three more talented pitchers on one roster than they had in 1970 with Simpson, uh, Gullet, and Nolan, I mean, just in terms of sheer talent, those guys were top shelf Hall of Fame type talents, and all three just, you know, unfortunate endings to their careers in some way. Although, as you said, Nolan and Gullet kind of hung on a little bit longer than did Wayne Simpson. So we're coming to the end of the uh, regular season. Not a ton at the end of the season. The Reds kind of scuffled towards the end, but they do end up winning the division. But we do want to mention Tony Perez became the first player to hit a red seat home run. And remember that used to be a thing. Well, that was a big thing, and and there weren't that many of them that, that were hit over the years. Yeah, they would post the the list in the the Inquirer uh, whenever it would happen. You know, the, all the people hit red seed home runs, and Perez was the first. Uh, late August, Jim Merritt wins his twentieth game of the season. You know, the Reds kind of kind of move on now. September second, I thought that was a pretty interesting story. You want to tell that story? Or you want me to? Go ahead. All right, September second. Gary Nolan uses a little bit of uh, of black magic to defeat Juan Marshall, Hall of Famer Juan Marshall, and the San Francisco Giants. The Riverfront Stadium, before the game, a Reds outfielder, who is this is probably the only time you'll ever hear him mentioned on a Reds podcast, Angel Bravo, which, first of all, what an amazing name. Uh, probably on hell, I don't know, but they, I'm sure at the time they called him Angel in uh, in America. He was a really superstitious and uh and he's, he was noted for his uncannily accurate predictions. Now, before the game, uh he handed Gary Nolan a rubber ball to carry with him during the game for good luck. And, and Bravo told him, "Now listen, uh this rubber ball, it only works when it is in the left pocket." And so Gary Nolan uh, pitched a three-hit shutout and drove in both runs with a single and a sacrifice fly that day. And so it was he said <laughs> He was afraid to go back to the clubhouse. No one said, I didn't know what kind of voodoo that, that guy has, Bravo. So kind of a funny uh, kind of a funny story there as the Reds are, are moving on, and they do clinch the division two weeks later. The only thing I remember about Angel Bravo was I have never seen anybody that choked up further than he did. His name was almost on the label. His hands were almost on the label. <laughs> I'm picturing him with his hands all the way up on the barrel. Um, it's amazing. He would ha- he would have to have some kind of a lucky uh, charm or some voodoo to be able to hit like that. So the Reds, eighty nine wins in nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy. Tony or Sparky Anderson shows up, and here we are. The Reds actually are in the playoffs now. Uh, you, I guess, we're too young that maybe maybe you tell me whether you remember that as being an exciting moment. The Reds actually being in the playoffs. I remember the. I can remember listening. To, we were. I was on a Boy Scout campout. When the when the playoffs started, and we were you know everybody was around the radio. I mean, you you, you just didn't want to miss this, you know. So the Reds went, had to go to Pittsburgh for the for the playoffs, and and the excitement was was incredible in the town. Game one, 
the Reds win three to nothing to take a a one game to none lead against the Pirates, and and this Pirates Reds matchup was one of the uh, one of the matchups that uh, kind of defined the uh, the season or the the decade of the 1970s for the Reds and the Big Red Machine, and here was the genesis of it: three to nothing, Gary Nolan and Doc Ellis both through nine shutout innings, but the Reds win it in the in the tenth. Uh, you want to tell us how that happened? Well, in the 10th inning, Ty Klein, who the Reds had gotten in a trade earlier that year, and we'll talk more about Ty Klein as we move through the playoffs in the World Series here. He, he triples for Nolan and Rose drives him in, and then two outs later, Doc Ellis intentionally walks Bench to get the Lee May, and May drives in uh, Johnny Bench and Pete Rose. And then Clay Carroll, one, two, three, is the Pirates in the bottom of the 10th, and he struck out Clemente and Johnny Jeter looking to get the last two outs. And that Clemente, he was pretty good. Roberto Clemente, he was okay. Yeah, he 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 could hit pretty well and throw and run. He, he was kind of he was kind of one of those all around guys. Yeah, he was not bad. He was not bad. So the Reds taking a quick one zero lead and uh, in the playoffs, uh, the National League Championship Series. Moving on to Game Two, two zero. Reds win three to one. What happened in uh, Game Two, Bill? Well, Bobby Tolan had a big game. Uh, he scored all three runs. Uh, the first run, he singled, stole a base, took third on when a throw went into center field and scored on a wild pitch. He homered. Uh, Merritt threw five and a third, giving up one run, and then Gullet pitched three and a third hitless innings to give the Reds the win. Again, how about you put in your 19-year-old to close the game with three and a half innings uh, in uh, in game two of the National League Championship Series? And again, it was the best three out of five at that time. So I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, game three, the series came, comes back to Cincinnati, and the Reds take a 3-2 win, uh, despite being out hit 10-5, and win the National League Championship Series and advance to their first World Series since 1961. Um, tell us quickly about what happened in that game to get the Reds back to the World Series, Bill. Well, they, they got back-to-back homers from Bench and Perez in the first. The, Pir- the Pirates tied it in the fifth, but in the eighth, eighth again, Ty Klein, pinch hitting. He got a walk. He moved to second on a Rose single and scored on a Tolan single. And the Reds' bullpen just shut him down. They had four innings of scoreless relief. And three of the innings came from another one of the youngsters, a 20-year-old kid named Milt Wilcox. And he'd only pitched in five games all year up to that point. (laughs) Crazy. 20 years old. Now, uh, you found an interesting note in uh, the fabulous book, Big Red Dynasty, that I thought was was hilarious. You know, this is the first game back in Cincinnati. Do you remember that uh, what that little anecdote? Yeah, they said they went. They came back. To, they came to Cincinnati down down two nothing, and I guess the pirate management didn't have a whole lot of confidence in their team coming back in this series because they only gave them meal money for one day. <laughs> yeah, they weren't expecting to <laughs> to win a couple of games and come back to Pittsburgh. Just let's give them meal money for one day. This is going to be a short uh, short trip. So there we go. The Reds are back in the World Series. And you know, at the time, it's a nine-year absence from the World Series. And there were probably fans who were like, oh, my gosh, we've had to wait nine years. To which I say, shut up. Yeah, we've been waiting a little longer than that. <laughs> we have. The Reds would face the Baltimore Orioles. The Orioles had won 108 games that year. And uh, we're in the World Series for the second straight season and uh, probably uh, had a little bit of motivation coming into this one anyway, didn't they? Because, uh, again, uh, this previous World Series wasn't too kind to them, was it? It was the beer of the Miracle Mets, and and you have to believe that the Orioles firmly believed that they were the much better team in 1969. 
and got beat in the series by a, a Met team that was just on fire and and they were you know the thing of legend. And so the the Orioles felt like in 1970 they had something to prove coming into the World Series. And the Reds, we've talked this whole episode about their youth and inexperience and and all the rookies and, and young rookies. Reds had three players with any uh, actual World Series exper- experience, and uh, and only really one of those uh, played a key role for the Reds, uh, and that would be Bobby Tolan, but also Ray Washburn and Wayne Granger had some uh, World Series experience. So uh, it, it was. It's kind of like we always think about the 1990 series in Cincinnati with a you know the upstart Reds. That's maybe the maybe the '69 series with the Mets is a is a better you know analogy. But uh, you have this team, the Orioles, who were expected to win and win big. And um, the first game, as it started out, is looking like the Reds, kind of like in that 1990 series. The game was in Cincinnati, and uh, it looked like the Reds were going to get things done quickly. They 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 jumped out quick, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And in, in, in the kind of back up for just a second here. This was the first World Series played on artificial turf, and it was the last World Series played entirely during the day. Uh, it was a different time then. Uh, I miss day World Series games. I, I still do. Jim Palmer started for the Orioles, and they got up, and, and, and the Reds got jumped on him and got up three to nothing by the third inning, a, a, a single by Bench and driving in Tolan and a two-run homer by Lee May. But the Orioles tied it up with a two-run homer by Boog Powell and a solo shot by Elrod Hendricks. So the uh, the series, you know, as, as we went on, it was uh, went to the sixth, tied up. And in, in that sixth, Bernie Carbo walked. Uh, Tommy Helms sent him over to third uh, with a single. And then, again, our guy Ty Klein pinch hits for Woody Woodward and hits a chopper in front of the plate. And uh, this is one that if you know anything about Reds history, you probably know about this play. If not, uh, it's one you need to go look up. Bernie Carbo broke for home. The umpire, Ken Burkhart, stepped towards the third baseline to make a fair or foul call on the hit because he didn't expect Carbo to be coming home. And uh, and he was blocking um, Carbo from getting to the plate, right? So Hendricks fielded the ball barehanded, tagged Carbo with his glove. So he's got the ball in his throwing hand, but tags Carbo with the glove, and the umpire calls Carbo out, um, but uh, a really, really strange play. And also, you can see it on it's something even stranger. Carbo didn't even get to the plate uh, when he slides, does he? He tags it later when he's arguing, going to argue with the umpire. What a bizarre play that everyone needs to go go look at, don't they? Yeah, it really was. Uh, and I, and again, I remember this as vividly as, as it was yesterday. And it, it is one you need to watch on YouTube because it's a it's a bizarre play. Uh, Burkhart's getting knocked down and, and he's trying to make a play and Hendricks has got the ball in one hand and he's tagging him with the glove and Carbo's sliding in and he misses the plate and he doesn't even touch the plate until he's arguing with the up. And the other thing that's kind of cool about this, if, if, and I don't know if it's on the YouTube clips, but if you watch when Sparky comes out to argue, the first thing Sparky does, if I remember right, is he puts his hands in his back pockets because he doesn't want to touch the up or, or bump the up. But if you listen, if you can find a, t- a recording that has the audio on it, Sparky never says one cuss word. And and he had been known for being having this huge temper and all this thing, you know, and, and when he was younger. But it, and and here he is in his first big, his first World Series, his first game, got this huge play where the ump has blown this call at the plate. Uh, and and Sparky just maintained his cool and went out there and you know didn't change anything, but. It's 
it's a it's a play that's hard to explain with words. You need to look at it on YouTube. And uh, you know, you can watch a couple games of this series on full games on YouTube. And I would encourage everyone to go do that because it's really interesting to see the the broadcast at the time and just how young Sparky looked. And you're right, it's a that particular moment is an interesting look into into Sparky. But it was just a just a ridiculous ridiculous play. But uh, but he's called out, and so. Ultimately, Brooks Robinson, uh, who would end up being a Reds killer in this season, uh, hits a home run in the top of the seventh, and uh, the Orioles ultimately win the game four to three to take a one nothing lead in Game One. But at that time, the Reds had to think. You know, we've uh, we've recovered from lots over the over the season. Uh, we had a chance to win this one. We're in pretty good shape. Yeah, they had gotten you know three hits off of uh, off of uh, Jim Palmer. In the first inning, they got one in the third, and then they didn't only only got one more hit for the whole rest of the game. And this was a team that was built on offense, so you had to b- believe that their offense couldn't be held in check like this for the rest of the series. But, but right, <laughs> um, game two followed a similar script. The Reds jumped on Mike Cuellar, uh, who was was an ex Red, obviously, and won twenty games that year, and knocked him out of the game by the third inning. It took jumped out to a four nothing lead. Um, and uh, but the Reds end up blowing uh, another early lead in front of fifty-one thousand one hundred and thirty-one fans at Riverfront Stadium. And I'll let you describe how the comeback happened and uh, and how the game finished. But um, two winnable games for the Reds, and they're going to go back to Baltimore down 0-2. Yeah, they were down six to four in the fifth, and the Reds cut it to six to five on a bench homer in the sixth. But the the O's bullpen shut them down. And the O's won six to five. Um, Boo Powell hit a second home run that day, and and the Red starters once again the Red starters couldn't hold couldn't hold it. Uh, McLaughlin got beat up on pretty good, and they brought in Mill Wilcox, and he got beat up on. It, it, and this would end up being the tale of the World Series as the Reds pitching just couldn't uh, hold keep the Orioles in check. Yeah. Game three, we go to Baltimore, and Jim Merritt was scheduled to pitch, but. Uh, Another uh, common common uh, story with these Reds pitchers, right? Yeah, the second half of the season, as we talked about, the injuries just mounted. Merritt and Simpson and and uh, Jim McLaughlin all had had injury problems in the second half, so Sparky had to go to the to probably their fifth starter, sixth starter, Tony Cloninger, you know, who, who was just willing to take the ball, and he was ineffective. He threw five and a third, gave up five runs. He ended up giving up, yeah, and he walked three, gave up two homers, to one to Frank Robinson, one to Don Buford. And they brought in Wayne Granger, who, who ended up ultimately kind of setting himself a record that he probably wishes he didn't have. He gave up the only grand slam to a pitcher in the World Series at that time, and I don't think another one's hit one since. And basically the game was over, and the Orioles coasted to a 9-3 to win and went up 3 nothing in the series. The next game was uh, one night later, one day later, I guess I should say. Uh, Casey Stingle throws out the first pitch, and the Reds actually, hey, they're not, they avoid getting swept. Six to five win, and, and that was uh, largely, other than uh, Lee May's three-run homer in the eighth, which was his second of the series, it was largely on the strength of some pretty uh, spectacular relief by Don Gullett and Clay Carroll, who combined for six and a third innings of relief. So that game I know is on YouTube that you can watch uh, in full and um, the Reds avoid the sweep. But one day later, not so good. They wrap up the series with another 9-3 to win in Baltimore. Again, the Reds jumped out to a 3 to nothing lead, 
but they only get two hits off of off of Cuellar the, the the final eight innings. And that day, Merritt tried to start, and he got he got blasted. And Granger was just as bad. And the series was—I mean, the game was over early. With two outs in the ninth, Sparky pinch hit Pat Corrales, who was bench's backup for Hal McRae, just so that Corrales could get into a World Series game. That was nice of him. Just get him, get yep. him in the box score. I like it. So that was the series. The Reds lose four games to one. And, uh, you know, uh, quick thoughts about uh, just in summarizing that World Series before we kind of summarize the whole year and where it stands in, in the building of the Big Red Machine. Well, in the World Series, the Reds' starting pitcher ERA was 9.14. You're not going to beat a whole lot of people when your starters have an ERA of 9.14. Uh, the Orioles won with defense by Brooks Robinson. If you can, and again, if you can see a, a YouTube highlight of this World Series, Brooks Robinson was incredible. He also hit 429 and was a World Series MVP. And, I, and I, I'll be honest, at the time, I didn't know much about Brooks Robinson, and I thought that maybe this World Series had catapulted him into the Hall of Fame later. But if you look at him on baseball reference, he had an amazing career. He won the MVP in 64. He was third in 65. He was second in 66. And he had ten. He had seven top 10 MVPs in his career to go along with winning 16 straight Golden Gloves and even 15 All-Star appearances. And that's with a career OPS that's only 104, which tells you how good he was defensively. That's pretty amazing. It, it is amazing, and he's a, certainly a deserving Hall of Famer. And, and you know, obviously this is before my time, but I remember seeing the, the videos – Growing up, maybe on this week in baseball or wherever you would see uh, highlights, you know, and and all what my big memory of of the 1970 World Series would be is they kept showing highlight after highlight of Johnny Bench specifically getting robbed by Brooks Robinson making these fantastic plays in the field, and so so my thought for about Brooks Robinson was he must must have been otherworldly with the glove. Uh, he also hit in that series, and that's how he won the MVP. But uh, that's largely how it's remembered, frankly, in in a lot of places as the the Brooks Robinson series and the Orioles get the win. Okay. So the Reds first world series of the big red machine era. And uh, how do we, how do we think about this team? Uh, let's talk about the full season uh, as it ended up and, and talk about how we think about this team in the context of the big red machine, 102 and 60, which was a, a club record for wins at the time, wasn't it? Yep. And, and the Pythagorean, you know, if you go by the Pythagorean, you know, baseball theorem, they should only won 91 games. Sparky. It's the magic of Sparky Anderson. Yeah. This was the second time a Reds team had won 100 games. The other time was in 1940. You started to see... Uh, we turned the, the page on the calendar, and a lot of things changed. The Reds became a National League pennant winner. And as you're looking to see what the Big Red Machine became, you see that uh, here is really the, the starting point, because attendance really went nuts uh, compared to what it had been before. Uh, 1.8 million. Uh, with 10 sellouts, and uh, which uh, shattered the old record of a little over 1.1 million in attendance. Now, some of that was because they had more seats uh, in the new stadium, Riverfront Stadium, but also uh, there's something coalescing in Cincinnati around this team, and the fans are really start, starting to understand this is a this is some kind of team, right? Yeah, uh, I think a lot of it had to do. It was, it was kind of hand in hand, as you're saying. It was it was a a bigger ballpark, a new ballpark. It was much more easily to access. Parking was a lot easier, and the team started was young and winning and exciting. We talk about the injuries on pitching, but uh, and how the team really uh, was failed by the pitching staff 
in the World Series. But overall in the season, the pitching wasn't that bad. I mean, second in the league in ERA at uh, 3.69 as a as a team. And, you know, at the time, that wasn't bad. The league average was 4.05. So maybe it's a uh, a better uh, pitching staff in retrospect. But a lot of that's before some of the injuries in the second half, I guess. Yeah, and, and over the next course of the next few years, we'll be talking a lot more about how the pitching is is better than people in retrospect give it credit for. Let's talk about individual performances on that team, including awards. Uh, I'll let you begin with the most valuable player in the National League. Well, that, that guy that, that we were talking about that played a little center field and played a little left field, he also played a little catcher. And and he had a, he had a pretty good year for the ball club. Uh, he had 45 home runs. He hit 145 RBIs, 148 RBIs. I'm sorry, check that. Um, the other thing is he had a 3.45 on base percentage. He had an OPS plus of 141, and he had a 7.4 WAR as a catcher. So when he won 22 out of 24 first place MVP votes, I don't think anybody was real surprised. No, absolutely not. He also won a Gold Glove that season. Uh, in addition to all the hitting, obviously that was. Uh a banner year with the bat, but uh, won a gold glove. And uh, along with Pete Rose and, and Tommy Helms, both won gold gloves that year. Yeah, a lot of people don't remember how good a defensive second baseman Tommy Helms was. Yeah, he had to be that year because he couldn't uh, hit water if he fell out of a boat that season. Uh, Bernie True. Bernie Carbo narrowly lost the uh, the official National League uh, Rookie of the Year, but uh, led the team with an OPS over 1,000, 454 on base, 551 slugging. A few played appearances short of qualifying for the batting title, but um, Carbo, man, what a welcome to the major leagues, Bernie Carbo. Yeah, and we didn't we didn't say this earlier, and I meant to is is the Carbo was drafted in front of Johnny Bench, which, which ought to tell you what expectations were for Carbo. Now he didn't qualify for the batting title that year. In retrospect, you know, I went back and looked at Carbo's stats from his career. And he was never really a full-time player anywhere, but no matter where he was for almost his entire career, he hit. He was a good hitter. Again, another young player. Looked like he was going to be a big-time player in the uh, big red machine as we go forward, and he does play a role going forward, but we'll get into that later, I guess. Other thoughts about individual performances that year, Bill? Uh, we, We kind of talked on Perez earlier. Um, he hit 317 with 40 home runs and had a 589 slugging percentage that year. And his 40 home runs were a Reds record for third baseman at that time, but that recently was broken. Yeah, by Eugenio Suarez, the delightful Eugenio Suarez. And, and Perez finished third in the MVP bat balloting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a fantastic season and perhaps his best season. Pete Rose finished seventh uh, in MVP at 316, so didn't win his third straight batting title. Um, who else you got? Bobby Tolan. He had a good season. He had a great season. He had, he had 316 with 16 home runs and, and 57 stolen bases. Um, this is when the Reds really started to, to turn the corner on speed. They, they start, you know, they, they were trying to take advantage of the AstroTurf and uh, were starting to make some decisions about where the team needed to go to, to take advantage of their home field. Yeah. And uh, for those of you that don't know, OPS plus, uh, and ERA plus, it, it's a it's an advanced analytical number that I won't get into the details on. But if you're over 100, you're better than average. If you're below 100, you're below average. How did the Reds uh, end up, uh, both on the pitching well, and uh, hitting side of the ledger? 
Well, there's six position players. Uh, they had six position players that were above average, which were above 100. And on their pitching staff, they had eight players with the ERA plus over 100. Uh, and the funny thing is, the, the lowest ERA plus uh, of those 100 was Jim Merritt, who won 20 games. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad at all. Bill, how do you kind of wrap up and assess the 1970 Reds and where they stand in uh, the history of the creation of what would become the Big Red Machine? It was really the first, 69 was important, but this was the first real uh, introduction onto the national scene, I would say, of the Big Red Machine. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think it was the, the, the young guys, you know, getting a taste of, of, of competition at the big league level. Um. The, the Carbos and McCrays and Simpsons and, and uh, Concepcion's and, and some of these young guys as we move forward. And, and the future is bright going into 71. The, uh, the, the team was very, very young. Uh, offensively, this was the third youngest team in Reds history. Pitching staff was, uh, you know, didn't quite, it was like seventh in, in team history for, for age, but the pitching staff would actually get younger in 71. Uh, on the offensive side, the older starters were, were Tommy Helms and Pete Rose, and they were only 29. And as we talked earlier, the rotation uh, it was Gary Nolan. He was 22. Merritt was 26. McLaughlin was 26. And Simpson, I mean, we didn't know at the time that he was done, but he was only 21. And Gullett was 19. Bourbon was 23. Milt Wilcox was 20. And Wayne Granger was 26. This was a young team that had won 100 and some games. Uh, going into 71, you couldn't have been more excited. And we will talk about 1971 next week where the Reds learn a tough lesson, but a valuable lesson. I want to thank you for listening to Building the Machine, this brand new podcast series coming to you from Red Leg Nation Radio to get each episode of this show delivered to you automatically. Subscribe to the Red Leg Nation Radio feed and you'll find uh, every episode once a week for 12 weeks. You can find us at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Essentially, wherever you find podcasts, we're there. Many of the facts, figures, and anecdotes from today's episode come from BaseballReference.com, the book's Red Leg Journal by Greg Rhodes and John Snyder, Big Red Dynasty by Greg Rhodes and John Arardi. And until next time, for Bill Lack, this is Chad Dotson saying, So long, everyone. <laughs>